The Murder Shelf Book Club contains disturbing content related to real-life crimes. Listener discretion is advised. He victimized women all through his life. He lived a life of deception to those around him. It's hard to imagine a worse or more evil thing. It's hard to imagine how his crimes have affected women's choices and their sense of personal safety. Having this monster out there has affected the quality of our life for years. A quote from Stephen Diver from The Bike Path Killer by Mackie Becker and Michael Beebe. Cuddle up a little closer, love mine. Cuddle up and be Welcome to episode 36, Just Write It Out on the Bike Path Killer by Mackie Becker and Michael Beebe, second cast. I'm your host, Jill, and I have a true crime book club in the greater Philadelphia area and love discussing true crime, where I apply my 30 years experience as a psychology educator who studied and taught about serial murder. I decided to turn my love of reading and fascination of true crime into a podcast so I can share these stories with you. Each month, I will discuss a book I pulled from my murder shelf in the first two episodes. No boring timeline here. I present the story from the author's point of view. And then in the third episode of the series, called Second Cast, I will delve into the paths not taken, the threads not pulled, add analysis, and updates to the case that are compelling. These episodes are a little different and can shake things up. A shout out to the Maldives. Hello there, murder bookies. You found me. I see you out there. And Ohio in the U.S. Wow. You are really listening. I appreciate it so much. It amazes me to see new corners of the globe listening to my podcast. Know that I'm aware that I appreciate you, and I really don't want to do this without you. Okay, spoiler alert. If you haven't listened to episodes 34 and 35, you need to do this first. The Bike Path Killer case lasted three decades. So much went into capturing him. A twisting investigation with a half dozen police agencies involved. Too many tips, dead ends, red herrings. Finally, Altelia Sanchez, loving father of two, baseball and basketball coach, church congregant, the nice friendly colleague, was arrested for serial rape and murder, leaving stunned disbelief, pain, and a trail of victims and their families. The Bike Path Killer was behind bars, and why this was a great relief, anyone who knew Altimio C. Sanchez was in a complete state of shock. The media descended on Al Sanchez's neighborhood, church, workplace, asking everyone they saw, what do you think? Neighbor Ed Van Volkenberg teared up, knowing the Sanchez's since 1986. Quote, he has a beautiful, wonderful wife and two sons. I personally watched those boys grow up. He's a great neighbor and a wonderful family man. End quote. Nadine and Jerry Donahue, who lived down the street for decades, were just as devastated. Nadine said, quote, 
everyone brought a dish to the Sanchez summer garden parties, a mix of couples, work friends, and neighbors, end quote. Jerry added, quote, the scary part is he is the nicest person you'd ever want to meet. This is what's so upsetting. He never made any sexual remarks about women, never swore. You'd go to his parties and have a beer or two with him, end quote. Work colleague Dave Heffron found the arrest unbelievable, and he said, quote, we were really close. I just couldn't imagine him possibly doing the things he did. He helped everybody. He got involved in charities. A lot of us are in shock, end quote. Another neighbor and friend, Joyce Heath, said, quote, I still have this little hope in my heart that it was all his evil twin, end quote. Even Bob Bandish, Sanchez's former work colleague, who called the police on Sanchez 16 years earlier, couldn't believe he'd finally been arrested. He said, quote, I figured I'd die never knowing whether it was him or not. He had everything. He had a family. He had golf, end quote. Golf. Golf was the, the big maximizer here. That is always the case, isn't it? Everybody in shock disbelief. The average guy next door, hiding in plain sight, fooling everyone, not letting his other dark, terrifying nature show. The cliche Jekyll and Hyde. The night before the arrest, Elizabeth Phillips, whose daughter, May Jane Mazur, had been a bike path victim, prayed that he'd be caught tomorrow and went to bed. Dreaming, May Jane came to her, telling her her long wait was ending and the police had the man who had killed her. Elizabeth didn't know what to make of the dream, but she felt moved by it. The next day, Elizabeth was with May Jane's daughter, her granddaughter, Christine who was moving in with her boyfriend and preparing for their baby. Christine's cell phone rang. Checking the message, it was Buffalo News reporter and book co-author Mackie Beaker. It sounded like something big had happened, so Christine called Beaker back. Learning from Mackie that the bike path killer was in custody, Christine went into shock, telling her grandmother as the two collapsed in an embrace, bawling their eyes out. They'd waited 15 years for this day. Elizabeth's prayers had been answered, and May Jane knew it too. She knew. Christine said she believed her mother, quote, was at peace and that all of us can stop worrying now, end quote. She went home and she Googled Altimio Sanchez, and then suddenly she began to worry again. What if the police had the wrong guy, or he gets off on a technicality? Could he walk away a free man? It wasn't quite over. Stephen Diver was thrilled that Sanchez had been arrested, but appalled he'd eluded police for decades. Quote, these were not perfect crimes. There were attempted rapes that produced eyewitness accounts and composite sketches. Why weren't these things linked together? Sanchez could have been caught in connection with Linda Yallen's murder. Had he been caught, years of misery and Joan's death could have been avoided. End quote. Why had it taken Joan's death for law enforcement to form the task force with enough resources to catch this guy? But Stephen was grateful for the task force, saying, quote, The task force showed the kind of creativity, cooperation, and determination that represents the best of law enforcement, end quote. I agree with Stephen. I share his lament that it could have happened earlier, though. Heavily guarded, Sanchez shuffled into the Erie County Courthouse, arms and legs shackled, held without bail. Altimio saw Kathy and his son Michael in the audience, still shell-shocked. 
Defense attorney Andrew LaTiempo entered an innocent plea. Prosecutor Clark and his boss, Frank A. Sedita III, would try the case for the people. They also hoped to be able to use the past rapes in their case, even if they were barred from prosecution by the five-year statute of limitations law. State Supreme Court Judge Christopher J. Burns would hear the case. Case and Sedita were furious at being unable to prosecute Sanchez's uncle, Wilfredo Caraballo, who lied to the police about lending his car to Sanchez in 1981. They sent an FBI agent to North Carolina to get a statement from Wilfredo anyway, and he confirmed that he did indeed lend his car to Altimio and that he lied. Caraballo's written statement read, quote, I lied because I was so scared for him to get arrested because there were so many innocent people in jail for something they did not do. But I still don't believe he did all this, end quote. If he had told the truth, how many rapes and deaths would have been prevented? Wilfredo belongs in jail for obstruction. This pisses me off murder boogies, and I'm not the only one that thinks this way. In 2008, State Police Captain Steve Negrelli, who was on the task force, told the New York Daily News, if the man had simply been truthful in 1981, all these women would have been spared, end quote. So many lives lost unnecessarily. Susie Coggins was completely numb. 20 years later, her rapist was finally in jail. She now understood why he hadn't been caught sooner. He looked perfectly normal with a normal life. Seeing him stirred up terrible memories. She was on the edge, even though she knew she would save. It's the cognitive dissonance that knowing something intellectually, but having all the feels anyway, it's very discombobulating. Bringing mind and emotion into sync can be really painful, as Susie would discover. Walking into a convenience store, Susie had a moment of panic seeing a man with a bushy mustache that looked like Sanchez. Silly, she told herself, he's in jail. But soon, the plague of nightmares began, dreams of being chased and grabbed out of nowhere. She screamed, kicked, clawed in her sleep until her boyfriend, Barnsey, would gently wake her up, holding her until Susie calmed down and resumed sleep. On seeing a karate studio flyer, Susie decided to join. She was taught an array of self-defense maneuvers, and it helped. Susie's confidence began to climb, giving her a sense of control over her own life again. And the nightmares gradually stopped. Not long after, Barnsey asked her to be his wife. Once Susie had doubts about marriage, but being married to this man sounded like the best thing she could imagine, and she said yes. Then the media began pouncing on the details that were released. The victim spotting Sanchez in the mall in 1981, Amherst PD interviewing Sanchez after the Linda Yallen murder and letting him go because the fingerprints from the water bottle didn't match his. Amherst PD was mortified. They prided themselves on thoroughness and meticulous investigation, spent untold man hours on this case, and hadn't managed to get the guy until now. Which Amherst police officers did the initial Sanchez interview? Ray Klimenzak and Captain Tom Gould, along with Lieutenant Joseph Laporte. What had gone wrong? All right, first mistake, not getting a DNA sample back then. I did wonder about that when I was reading. The FBI had asked them to limit the number of samples they were sending in, and Gould told the authors that Sanchez was one of a thousand people being interviewed. And Bob Bandish's tip, 
it just didn't seem all that compelling at the time. If you remember, he said he had seen El Timio here and he had seen El Timio there, and it kind of coincided with rapes, but he hadn't seen El Timio attacking anybody. He just seen him driving his car or riding his bike. Not that Bob Banish's tip had been ignored. It wasn't. Sanchez had been surveilled at home and at work, and he was brought in for questioning. Secondly, in a 1990 photo of Altimio Sanchez, he was balding. The 1989 victim had described her rapist as having a full head of hair, so she didn't identify him. Gold hadn't sat back either. He utilized female officers as decoys, put emergency phones in along the bike path, plexiglass shelter along the path so people could sit but still see all around themselves. He hoped that he had saved a few lives by being proactive. The Buffalo PD had also been close to catching Sanchez back in 1981. They had tracked down the lying Wilfredo Caraballo. They had taken his photo and shown it to rape victims who didn't identify the uncle. Four years later, the Buffalo PD had arrested the wrong man using a tip from a well-respected city official and former cop. Plus, three victims identified Anthony Capozzi as their rapist. Lastly, the sheriff's office also screwed up, calling off the 2006 search for Joan Diver after a day, leaving the crime scene vulnerable to the wet weather. Had DNA been washed away? Who knew? And there were so many what-ifs as they looked back with hindsight, which is always 2020. Retired Amherst detective Ray Clemensack was elated when he heard of the arrest. Learning who Altimio Sanchez was, he realized the FBI profilers had been spot on. They had said he wouldn't return to Amherst. He hadn't. Instead, he returned to places he felt most comfortable in, downtown Buffalo, where May Jane Mazur was killed. Then Sanchez went to Riverside, where he attacked all three high school students right near his job at American Brass. The FBI had said he had a normal life, one that Kathy, Michael, and Christopher Sanchez would confirm. Great home family in the suburbs, it still galled Ray that they had Sanchez in their hands and let him go. Still, it was a new day. Clemenzak realized he didn't have to drive by the I-990 anymore and didn't need to watch the Ellencott Creek bike path to see if someone was lurking. He could now enjoy his retirement. The task force still had a big job to do. They had to re-interview dozens of witnesses managed the calls coming in, who were women who believed they'd been raped by Altimio Sanchez. This wasn't surprising, as they'd always thought there were other unsolved rapes out there, it being an underreported crime. And Anthony Capozzi was still in jail. Buffalo Police Officer Dennis Delano was assigned to, quote, free Capozzi, end quote. There was such joy in the Capozzi household. Sanchez's arrest had been the miracle they had been praying for. Every day since his arrest on September 13, 1985, Anthony's mother Mary had said a novena to the Virgin Mary, praying for her son's release. Anthony's friend, John Justice, what an appropriate name to this story, explained, quote, twice a week, the family would drive out to Attica to visit Anthony. They saw how prison had worn him down, causing them to worry about his mental health. Remember, he has schizophrenia murder boogies. He did hard time. He used to put out cigarettes on his nose so people would think he was a tough guy and they'd leave him alone, end quote. Justice's relatives sometimes came to the prison to visit with the Capozzi's. 
every time Anthony would ask why he was locked up, he couldn't understand how he could be in prison for something he didn't do. When can I come home? He asked as everyone's hearts shattered. Despite his schizophrenia, Anthony never wavered in his insistence that he did not rape anyone in Delaware Park, even though it could help get him out of prison early. He appeared before the parole board five times, always refusing to admit he'd raped the women. Now, New York state law requires the inmate to acknowledge their crimes before they can get paroled. Capozzi was up for parole again in a few months, this time with Sanchez in jail for the rapes. Mary and Albert Capozzi were hoping their son would have a real chance, but it wouldn't be that easy. To get Anthony Capozzi out of prison, the DA's office needed solid evidence that irrefutably exonerated him if they were going to a judge to ask for his release. They needed DNA evidence. As far as they knew, there was no physical evidence left from those two decade-old rapes. The Bike Path Killer Task Force wasn't letting this stop them, however. Dennis Delano and Lisa Redman racked their brains for ideas on where they might find old evidence. Perhaps the victims had been treated at the Erie County Medical Center? Might their rape kids still be stored there? Lisa Redman called that hospital, speaking to someone in the lab, explaining the situation. The woman replied she didn't have anything like that but she would speak to someone in quality assurance to verify. Passed on to the next lab employee, Redmond was told there were no old rape kits stored at ECMC. Dead end. The media, running out of new material for the Sanchez stories, shifted to Capozzi stories. Don Esmonde, a columnist for the news, interviewed Delano about Anthony Capozzi's situation. And Delano said he was convinced Capozzi was innocent and he would, quote, bet my career on it. It breaks my heart that he's been in jail for these 20 odd years, end quote. But they needed proof as the parole hearing loomed closer and closer. Wilfredo Caraballo, Altimio Sanchez's uncle, had largely been spared public scrutiny since he admitted lying to the police about lending his Oldsmobile 88 to his nephew. This changed the day of the arrest. Lou Mitchell, a Buffalo News reporter, found Caraballo living in North Carolina, shocking Wilfredo when Mitchell called him. And this is what he told Mitchell, quote, if I knew that he did something like this, I would have reported it. If I knew he was doing all this raping, I would have reported it. That's bad. I've got three daughters myself and grandkids, end quote. Then he denied he lied to the police. Odd, because Wilfredo had told the task force members he'd lied to them. Caraballo told Mitchell that the police asked him about the car, and he went to Altimio and asked him what went down. Quote, I was mad at him. Have you done anything wrong? Because they were looking for me, end quote. Sanchez assured Uncle Freddy that he'd done nothing wrong. Wilfredo admitted to Mitchell that, quote, I didn't really believe him because of his eyes. You know, when people lie, you can see it. I suspected something happened because the cops would never come in the house without a reason, end quote. And then he claimed to Mitchell, at first, it was an oversight that he hadn't told the detectives about lending the car to Al. Then he said he may have been motivated not to tell the police, quote, because many innocent people end up in jail, end quote. Or he might have, quote, wanted to protect the family member until he found out more, end quote. All right, Freddie is 
all over the place here. He lied. He didn't lie. He knew. He didn't know. He's making shit up to cover his sorry ass. And I am pissed at this guy. He chose to leave a bad guy out there to pray and murder women. What a friggin' outrage. Okay, if there's anyone who was as unpopular as Altimio Sanchez, it was soon Uncle Wilfredo Carabolo. But he got away with it, and there was nothing law enforcement could do about it. <sighs> oh, crap. So just when you think the bad guy is in jail and it's all going smoothly, justice is coming, the poop hits the fan. Prosecutor Frank Sedita met with some of the task force members to discuss the DNA problem. The DNA test results from Lindy Allen didn't technologically match with the DNA results from the recent tests from the Seoul restaurant or the coffee cup at Borders. So briefly, DNA holds the genetic material, but the DNA technology itself has evolved a lot. And the test results show different things. And there was no way to make the different technologies compatible. The DNA tests of the 1990s, which is called Restriction Fragment Length Polymorphism, RFLP. And in 2007, they were using polymerase chain reactions, PCR. The DNA machinery from the 1990s didn't even exist in 2007. You can't play an eight-track tape on an iPad, right? So there is no way to even test the sole and border samples using the antiquated technology. So this is a problem. So what did Dr. John Simich, the forensic pathologist, suggest? He advised, go get more samples. But oh God, where? Where get more samples? Bracing himself. Sadita checked with Dr. Wartash at the morgue. By any chance, had they kept material from the autopsies? And Dr. Wartash confirmed, yeah, he had. So, oh my God, they got slides from the Allen and Mazur autopsies, and they redid all the DNA testing. And miraculously, the problem was solved. But this gave them some real, real nervous moments. But a bigger battle was looming in court. Lotiempo, the defense attorney, filed a slew of motions, including a change of venue, which he won. Lotiempo filed a Molyneux motion named for a 1901 case that was argued before the New York Court of Appeals, trying to keep rape evidence out of a murder trial. Fun fact, the Molyneux decision laid out the guidelines. Did the uncharged crime, the rapes, aid in the jury's decision to get at the truth, or would it prejudice the jury against the defendant destroying his chance for a fair trial? The mnemonic device, mimic, is useful. Motive, intent, modus operandi, identification, and common scheme. With these factors in consideration, the rapes could be admitted. Both Lotiempo and Sedita were confident that they would win before Judge Burns. This would be critically important. Sanchez had been booked for the May Jane Mazur murder, which was not the strongest case given she was a sex worker, because Lotiempo could easily argue that Altimio Sanchez had sex with Mazur, but didn't kill her. And if the jury didn't know about the other rapes, there was a chance of acquittal. Then there was the Joan Diver case, which was far from airtight. They had DNA evidence 
but only a trace amount on the ignition switch of her car. No DNA was found on or in Diver's body, nor was any found at the crime scene. Sanchez could say he was helping Joan to her car one day, put groceries in, or she ran out of gas, whatever. It was a stretch, but reasonable doubt would free Altimio Sanchez. The Linda Yallen case was considered the strongest of the three. She was a student at the University of Buffalo, and Sanchez had no ties to the university. He raped her and then killed her. His fluids were found on her body. Lotiempo could make much, however, of the technology mismatch and the need to retest everything. A jury might be tempted to acquit. Officer Ed Monin was surprised and upset. They had DNA. Yelling case was a lock, wasn't it? It was supposed to be. What the hell would this guy walk? January 25th, Lieutenant Lacourt received a call from a woman who claimed that she had been raped as a teen in 1977 in Angola, a tiny town south of Erie County. She had seen Altimio's photo and knew he was the one who attacked her when she was 13 years old. Riding her bike, she noticed a man driving slowly up and down four or five times. She just kept riding. And when she passed a blind curve, the car was stopped with its hood up. The man asked her how far it was to Point Breeze, a nearby beach. She replied, that's eh, a few more miles down the road, and she kept riding. When she heard footsteps behind her, she was attacked by a man pulling her off her bike. He began to choke her until she passed out, and then he raped her. This was Sanchez's MO, and it sounded very familiar to a July 1984 assault in Evans, which is nearby Angola. Lieutenant Sam DeJohn of the Evans Police Department had been investigating but the rape kit was lost, so a direct link couldn't be made. Amherst and Hamburg police departments began looking into this allegation with Dijon assisting. Monin interviewed the woman for a few hours. He asked Dijon if the Erie County Medical Center kept their rape kits, but Ed had no idea. Dijon called the next day, speaking to Ann Victor Lazarus, the head of quality assurance who asked him to make the request in writing on police letterhead. Sometimes you just hate bureaucracy. A whole month later, Victor Lazarus called Dijon back. She hadn't found anything from the 1977 case, but she had located slides from the 1984 rape kit of the Evans victim. Surprised, relieved, he asked her about slides at the hospital. Well, yes, they had other slides there too. As it turns out, the hospital's pathology department had kept all the slides from the rape kits dating from 1973 to 2002. That was the year Central Police Services, CPS, began handling all the county rape kit lab work. A friggin' man. But they needed a court order for her to turn the slides over to him. DeJohn notified Frank Sedita, quote, I have an open rape case from 1984. Victim resides in North Carolina. She stated from looking at the photos that it was indeed Sanchez. Erie County Medical Center has located forensic slides containing suspect semen from rape kit. I am certain the DNA will match that of Sanchez. ECMC requires a court order for me to obtain the evidence, end quote. He also asked if DNA had been tested on the Delaware Park rape cases. Turns out, no, 
the DNA had not been done. But Lisa Redmond had asked about the rape kits and been told they didn't exist. So what was the case? Well, it turns out, most fortunately, that Dr. James Rotash, the chief medical examiner, also happened to be head of ECMC's pathology department. He confirmed the rape slide collection as he'd overseen the lab and preservation until 2002. No one in law enforcement had ever asked him about the slides, but they had now. Two weeks later, Wotash called Sadita to tell him that all the slides had been located for all the victims, a judge signed the warrant, and Rosansky and Monin retrieved this precious evidence. Delivered to CPS, the DNA testing began, only it was going to take six or seven weeks. Redmond was beside herself. Anthony Capozzi's parole hearing was April 4th. They needed the results from the slides before the hearing to have any hope of freeing the innocent man. Sedita had Dr. Simich expedite results of the two 1984 victims that Capozzi had been convicted of raping. It was a very ticklish science to do this testing, being extra cautious so as to not destroy the material on the slide. On March 28th, the results came back. Anthony Capozzi had not raped anyone, and the rapist was Altimio Sanchez. Huge turning point. Frank Clark held a blockbuster press conference with Capozzi's attorney, Thomas D'Agostino, next to him. Quote, at least he's been vindicated. He always said he didn't do it. End quote. D'Agostino filed a motion to vacate Capozzi's conviction. The Capozzi family shared the amazing news with Anthony on speakerphone. Anthony was confused, though. His sister, Sharon Miller, repeated, quote, Aunt, you're a free man. You're a free man, end quote. And Capozzi just replied, really? The quiet of a country farm is shattered by a fatal explosion. It blew Roberto in pieces. He caught on fire. There are thousands of bits of evidence and almost as many questions. They went out to a crime scene and they collected things that, quite frankly, didn't belong there at the scene. And one more thing is out of place. It's found on a sheet of paper that's blank, but still loaded with information. When you see it, it's like, oh my gosh, that is, that's what that is, that's what's happening. Posey's vindication came with excitement, but it also came with great soul-searching and angry finger-pointing. Clearly, the justice system had failed Anthony Capozzi. Contacting the two rape victims from 1994, they were aghast. One woman collapsed to the ground, crying her eyes out. Her testimony had put an innocent man in prison for more than two decades. Sheila DiTulio, the prosecutor in the Capozzi case, was now a state Supreme Court justice. She declined to speak, but she issued a statement, quote, I deeply regret the outcome of this case. I realize it brings little comfort or consolation to Mr. Capozzi or his family. I handled this case fairly and honestly, 
based on the evidence and information that was available at the time. This is the most troubling and upsetting circumstance in my 15 years as a lawyer and judge, and I am truly sorry for what happened in this case, end quote. Well, yeah, I hope so. I have to ask, though, how come it took the task force members five minutes of speaking with Capozzi to figure out that he wasn't the rapist that she prosecuted? Now, that's between Sheila DiTullio and her conscience to answer. The DA's office and ECMC also argued heatedly about why it had taken till 2007 to find the slides, with both sides blaming each other for poor communication. In the meantime, Anthony Capozzi had to be gotten out of jail, and it was not a simple matter or a fast one, shamefully. There needed to be a series of hearings, and then the fact that Capozzi had just recently been transferred to a mental health facility by the prison complicated the situation. Justice Richard C. Klotch Sr., who supervised state judges for criminal cases, agreed to expedite the Capozzi case, bypassing the hearings. Yeah, you think? Anthony was transferred to the Buffalo Psychiatric Center near his family's home. April 3rd, the family, Thomas D'Agostino, Delano, Redmond, Rosansky, and Keats were all waiting together. This Sunday happened to be Easter, with the trees decorated with blue ribbons welcoming home and honoring the Virgin Mary. When Anthony arrived, he was embraced with his family's love, throwing their arms around him, just overcome with emotion and glad to have him back. They all sat down for a family portrait for the first time in 20 years, something Mary Capozzi hadn't wanted to do with Anthony missing. And then the big Italian family dinner began. Anthony would wind up staying in the psychiatric center for a few weeks to help with the transition to life outside. He received a hero's welcome, neighbors shaking his hand, congratulating him. He began spending weekends with his parents. One weekend, Anthony, the Capozzi's, and the task force were all treated to a celebration at Seoul Restaurant, the same one where Sanchez and his wife had dined under surveillance. New York state legislators passed a law for the wrongly accused inmates to sue the state, naming it Anthony's Law, which gives docket priority to claims for those who've been unjustly convicted and imprisoned. At the same time, Senator Dale Volcker wrote that it could take between one and a half to four years for a case to be considered and resolved by the Court of Claims. This case changed that and improved the situation. And A year and a day after his release, Anthony Capozzi filed a $41 million lawsuit against New York State. But this was insufficient, murder boogies. The law still needs updating as New York still ranks number three in wrongful convictions, with 283 people exonerated since 1989. New York Assemblyman Dan Court, who represents New York's 73rd Assembly District, has been trying to get a law passed since 2019, to improve the post-conviction process when it comes to wrongful convictions. His bill, co-authored with Senator Zelnor Myrie, had some momentum in spring 2021, but has languished in the Assembly Committee. Assemblyman Court wrote, quote, under the state law, if you plead guilty to a crime, the only way to overturn your conviction is through DNA evidence, even if you are actually innocent. No DNA evidence in your case, no exoneration. The rule stems from a 2008 New York Court of Appeals case, People v. Tiger, 
end quote. So, of course, I looked up people versus tiger. Nastasha Tiger, a licensed nurse, was accused of harming her disabled 10-year-old patient after she reported seeing what looked like burns on the child's body during the bath. Facing seven years in prison if she was convicted at trial, Miss Tiger decided to take a plea deal and instead served four months. It was later revealed that these burns were likely a reaction to medication, not the result of Miss Tiger's actions, and a civil jury found her not liable for the injuries. When she appealed her conviction on the grounds that she had effectively been proven innocent in civil court, the Court of Appeals denied relief, citing her guilty plea and lack of DNA evidence, leaving Miss Tiger with no recourse to clear her name. All right, this is insane. This law needs to be passed. Use your voices, murder bookies. People in New York State, use your voices. Make some calls, send some emails. It only takes a second for this to make a huge difference in someone's life. I urge you to contact your representatives and get this reform done already. There is a link on my blog at www.murdershelfbookclub.com. Let's fix this. The task force disbanded, except for Delano and Redmond of the Buffalo PD, state police troopers Keats, Rosansky, Savage, and McCarthy from the sheriff's office. The phone kept ringing off the hook. Those left aided the DA in building as strong a case against Altimio Sanchez as possible, who was still declaring his innocence. The phone also rang off the hook. These calls were from past victims of the unsolved rapes. At least a dozen women called saying that they had been raped by Sanchez. It was a daunting task to go through these potentially linked cases, with Redmond handling the lion's share as the sex crimes investigator expert. In most of these cases, the women couldn't remember details that would have helped Redmond find their files. Some hadn't reported the case to police when it happened. Others didn't know what precinct they'd gone to and almost all failed to pan out, except one. July 14, 1985, she had been raped by a man looking like Sanchez. It was exactly one year to the day before Susie Coggins' rape. They knew Sanchez had a thing for anniversaries, given the Allen Diver connection. The victim explained she was a sex worker at the time, and Sanchez picked her up in downtown Buffalo, supposedly driving her to a secluded spot, an isolated field. He wrapped a rope around her throat, pulling it to control her, raped her, and left her naked. A neighbor saw her emerge from the woods, crying for help. They called the police, but at the time, the Buffalo PD did not connect this rape to the bike path killer case. Two more rapes from back in 1977 fit Sanchez's MO. It was learned that Sanchez was still in high school when he committed his first rape, May 26, 1977, at Delaware Park. He approached a young woman in her car, showing her a knife and snarling, quote, do not resist, end quote, ordering her out of the car, pushing her to the ground, tied her hands, gagged her, forced her to undress, and he raped her. If she moved, he pulled the gag further. Done, he took her purse, looked for money, and fled. July 18, 1977, he struck again at Shoshone Park near the railroad tracks. It was 9.30 a.m., he went up to a young 19-year-old woman. This time, he had a gun. My name is Dave, he told her, forcing her to strip and get on the ground. 
raping her. When he was done, he rifled through her purse and ran off. So I'm starting to see a very early MO that is going to continue to evolve over time. With the three cases from 1977, the number of women believed to have been raped by Sanchez climbed to 15. He was unsuccessful in raping another, and then came the three murders. The prosecution wanted DNA swaps from all the known victims. There would be no question of accuracy in their testing. The remaining task force members flew all over the country locating victims, some not having heard of the arrest at all. The DA was concerned about the diver case that rested on his DNA being in Jones' car. That didn't prove he killed her. One potential witness, Jane Peterson, who worked at Hector's Hardware in Clarence, came to light. The last week of September in 2006, days before Joan was murdered, Jane Peterson said she sold Altimio Sanchez four feet of cable, identifying him from an array of photos. There were two reasons that she recalled the sale. One, it was non-insulated wire. Everyone buys insulated wire, so this was odd. And two, he wanted it cut to exactly four feet. In Dr. Wotash's autopsy of Joan Diver, the one-eighth inch diameter of the non-insulated wire matched the brutal cutting into Joan's neck, and he would testify to this fact. This gave the DA the confidence to indict Sanchez for Joan Diver's murder, matching the autopsy photos of Lindy Allen's to Joan's. The terrible ligature marks were indistinguishable. Quote, they're killed 16 years apart on the same day. Just look at them, and you're telling me that's a coincidence? Are you kidding? End quote said Frank Sedita. Once Sanchez was arrested, the world went tilt for Kathy Sanchez. Local, national media began hounding her. Camped outside her home, she refused to look at the reporters dying to get her attention. Her husband's arrest, it had to be a terrible mistake. She emptied his 401k plan to pay his legal fees, trying to cope with the new reality. Speculation was rampant wondering how much she knew about her husband's twisted activities. Was she complicit? She was not, by the way. None of the task force members believed Kathy Sanchez had any clue about Altimio's sick pastime. They felt sorry for her, although they couldn't understand why she was standing by her man, giving the mountain of DNA evidence proving his guilt. Kathy met Al while they were attending Buffalo State College. She got pregnant and they decided to marry July 5th, 1980. Christopher was born in October, and a few months later, she was pregnant again, this time with Michael. Al Sanchez told investigators he was thrilled to be a dad. He also raped the 21-year-old Buffalo State student when Kathy was about four months pregnant. This was the victim who spotted Al and his family at the mall, recognizing him. Sanchez was working the evening shift at American Brass so he could take care of the boys while Kathy worked during the day. Altimio had been a model dad doting on the boys, coaching baseball, and then church basketball. The family enjoyed traveling to Paris and London, Las Vegas, and Florida. Meanwhile, Altemio Sanchez was raping and killing women, as well as patronizing sex workers. Kathy Sanchez knew about one of his two arrests for prostitution, was deeply upset about it. There was another time when she thought he was having an affair with one of her friends, and they separated for a few months but she had no clue about her husband's dark secrets. Even task force members noted that Sanchez was entirely devoted to his wife. During their interviews with him, he'd get emotional when they mentioned Kathy. He worried how the arrest would affect her because, quote, she's got a heart murmur, end quote. 
In July, Kathy Santris told her husband's probation officer, quote, my heart is broken. I can't believe anybody I'm connected with could hurt people he didn't even know in such a horrendous way. He's probably the last person on earth I would believe could do this or be capable of it. My sons can't believe it either. They love their father so much. Never once did he ever strike me as being someone who could be a little bit crazy or a little bit odd, end quote. All right, I want to say for the record that abusing and bullying the family of serial killers or any criminal is not okay. They're going through something that is unimaginably shocking and painful. Abusing them makes you a perpetrator, a criminal. Someone I respect and care a lot about has such a father and speaks of being abused, harassed, and targeted by her father's so-called fans. Right? This is not okay. Abuse is abuse. It is sick, twisted, and anyone involved with this should be ashamed of him or herself and cease. Doing it on social media is not okay either, even if you feel one step removed and safe doing it. It debases you. It does not empower you. You are not cool. You are not smarter. You are not unique. This is sad. Get help if you hear yourself here. It is not okay. The golden rule. Treat others as you want others to treat you. Yeah, it's sappy, but it's true. And this just pisses me off so much. So take it to heart, have some compassion, and stop it. Okay, so it was May 16th, 2007, and something was up. Reporters sensed it. The courthouse security sensed it. But what? Judge Christopher J. Burns was presiding over Sanchez's routine pretrial motions. Sanchez shuffled in, wearing handcuffs, leg cuffs, and chains, with a dark suit, white shirt, and a red tie. Then his attorney, Lotiempo, made the stunning announcement that his client was pleading guilty to all the counts in the indictment. Whoa. I startled, the judge asked Sanchez what he had done to Linda Yallen. Staring at the floor, head down, he said, quote, I strangled her, end quote. Kathy Sanchez burst into tears, squeezing the life out of her brother's hand. Sanchez repeated the reply about May Jane Mazur and Joan Diver. Stephen Diver later said, quote, I wanted to bash his brains out. I'm not sure how I restrained myself, end quote, believing a higher power had kept him from acting. Lotiempo later explained the plea. Quote, he decided it would be best for his family and the family of his victims to save them from hearing the details of the case, end quote. Yeah, sure he did. Greg McCrary, a former FBI profiler, told author Michael Beebe, quote, someone like this who's done what he's done has no compassion for victims. He's shown that repeatedly. So is he doing that to protect them? I'm skeptical of that, end quote. What a bunch of bunk, Al. While Al Sanchez does seem to have true emotion for his wife, being concerned for the welfare of others is highly unlikely. This is not altruism coming from a narcissist. McCrary points out that narcissists are hypersensitive to criticism. So envision Sanchez listening to the trial about how he screwed up, got caught, failed. That is more the motivation than sparing victims and the families. And they have him cold with DNA. Oh, oh, one more thing. Sanchez didn't want to tell Kathy about the plea deal. Sanchez wanted Lotiembo, his lawyer, to do so, and he flatly refused. 
what? A frigging coward. Sanchez had to confess to his wife that he was the bike path killer. This piece of crap wanted to duck this revelation, despite his affection for his wife, and he'd let the lawyer handle it? And this is the guy sparing his family? No, 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 I don't buy it. Kathy Sanchez released a statement, quote, the family of Kathleen Sanchez expresses its deep sorrow and heartfelt prayers for the family and friends of so many victims. It is unimaginable to us that someone we have truly loved and respected for so many years could be capable of such violent acts, and we are sincerely sorry and filled with grief for your tragic losses, end quote. But hold up, Sanchez wasn't initially going to plead to Joan Diver's death. Like, what? Do you believe it? Well, it fits perfectly with this guy's perverted personality. D.A. Frank Sedita explained that he didn't want to publicly admit to his wife that he had done Diver. Evidently, after his prostitution arrest, after Kathy caught him cheating, he promised her that it was going to stop. If he pled guilty to Yellen and Mazur, well, that was before the promise. If he admitted Diver, that would mean he'd lied to his wife. Seriously? All right, I admit to murder, but breaking my promise? Oh no, I draw a line there. Well, that's some psychological gymnastics there. Sadita refused, by the way. He would try all three murders, or Sanchez would plead to all three murders. Good for him having a backbone. Later, Judge Christopher Burns retired in December 2021, so just a few months back, and he reflected on the day Sanchez pled guilty, which remains a very vivid memory. He told Buffalo News reporter Lou Mitchell, quote, you could just see the evil that was present during the proceeding. It was in his eyes. His eyes were black. The pupils were dark, just very dark. And there was an aura of darkness all around him. He got what he deserved, end quote. Susie Coggins heard of the guilty plea and was ecstatic. She had been dreading the thought of testifying in court. She knew a trial would mean major media coverage and she'd have to hear about Sanchez day in and day out. Susie worried how all this would impact her and the other victims. What of Joan Diver's children? Now she could move forward with it all in the rearview mirror. Sanchez was taken to another interview by Prosecutor Frank Sedita, the DA's chief investigator, John Cleary, James Murphy, Sedita's top homicide investigator. And Sanchez admitted he'd raped 10 to 12 women who he'd chosen randomly after taking note of isolated areas where an assault wouldn't be observed. He'd recon the area, see where he could grab a woman from behind, drag her undercover, rape her with little chance of detection, and then make a quick exit to his car, parking nearby. Why did he rape? Sanchez said he liked the arousal, but it was about controlling women, not sex. While he was attacking, he was in control. After, he knew he'd done wrong, going back to being the good husband and the good dad. But the urge to rape would come over him when he was alone, especially if he'd identified a perfect location for an assault, which he liked to do often. Sanchez insisted that he only used rope and that he did not buy non-insulated wire at the Clarence hardware store. I don't believe him. Forensics shows the insulated wire matched the injuries to the neck too perfectly, and science doesn't lie. Serial killers lie. He was afraid of being caught. He claims he never meant to kill Linda Yallen or Joan Diver, but they both fought him so hard during the attacks. The day Joan Diver died, he had driven to the Galleria Mall, throwing away the garrote in the dumpster, 
bought a new shirt, and went to his wife's reunion party that night, all smiles. Sanchez tried to minimize. The seven rapes in Delaware Park, he took responsibility for two, in spite of the DNA matching. Becker and BB write that, at this point, Lotiempo interjected. Al, some of these denials don't make any sense. All right, this was no time for manipulation. Sanchez then started admitting to raping the other women, but denied that he'd use a gun. He also denied the two rapes that Anthony Capozzi had been convicted of, again, in spite of the DNA evidence. Then he admitted these rapes. Admitting Capozzi's incarceration made it easier for him to keep raping. He admitted raping Susie Coggins, the Riverside High School student in the junkyard, too. The final tally after three hours of the interview was Sanchez admitted to murdering three women and raping 12 others. And he confessed that he told Uncle Freddy, Wilfredo Carabolo, that he had raped the Buffalo State student the day he borrowed the car. And gee, their previous close relationship soured. Well, you think, Al? And I'm not getting started on Uncle Freddy again. For sentencing, Sanchez appeared in a gray suit, shackled again. He'd lost a lot of weight. In the front row were Stephen Diver and Ann Brown, Linda Yellen's big sister. Christine Mazur, who was eight months pregnant, opted not to attend. Ann Brown told the court that she had been destroyed when her younger sister was killed. Quote, I learned what happened to her, and it was worse than your worst nightmare. The killer left her lying in the dirt with her T-shirt over her head and her pants pulled down. How do I live with that? It still tortures me, end quote. Seeing other sisters together, celebrating holidays and family functions was still difficult for Anne, and she asked Judge Burns to give him the most severe sentence. Stephen Diver was next. He read a Mother's Day poem written to Joan by their eight-year-old daughter, Claudie, on her being the best mom. Stephen said, quote, Joan's life, its importance to her, to me, and to my children cannot be fully described. The grief that we have suffered due to her loss isn't easily expressed through the use of language. Joan did not die. She was horribly and violently accosted and murdered. She suffered. She was strangled with a metal cord wrapped so tightly it cut into her. For some absolute inhuman reason, he beat her in the face after he killed her. Compare her radiance in life with the puffy, swollen face in the autopsy photos. This act of barbarity is so heinous, it raises this immoral and inexcusable crime to the highest level of punishment, end quote. Stephen also told the court about Joan's love of birdsong, the smell of dampness in the deep woods to feel the sunshine on her face. He spoke of her devotion to her four children, teaching them the respect for others. She was likely thinking of them when she was running, was surprised, attacked, and killed. Sanchez spoke to the court apologizing, but what he said isn't worth repeating. Judge Burns sentenced him to 75 years to life, the maximum. Quote, you showed no mercy and you deserve none. It's this court's intention that you shall never see freedom again, end quote. Okay. So often in serial killer cases, we wonder why. Why did he do this? Why? Many do not open up or try to communicate the whys. Some give us vague, evasive understanding. Sanchez did speak, however. 
sent to the Clinton Correctional Facility in Northern New York State on November 8, 2007, he was housed in the high-profile prisoner's wing, the Assessment and Program Preparation Unit, the same place that Robert Chambers, the preppy killer who killed Jennifer Levin in Central Park, and Ralph Bucky Phillips, who killed a New York State trooper escaping, the one I mentioned last episode. This is where they were housed. Sanchez spoke to two profilers from the FBI's Behavioral Analysis Section of Quantico, Bob Morton and Kurt Malecker, and Josh Keats. They suspected he might have committed 22 rapes, maybe more. They had DNA on 14 of them. Josh began by delving into Sanchez's background in Puerto Rico, the abuse his mother suffered at the hands of her boyfriend. After he denied it previously, Sanchez finally admitted the boyfriend had sexually abused him at least twice a week. His mother knew and did nothing because she was so fearful of the guy. Then one day, she packed them up and left, and they wound up in Buffalo, New York. They lived in a white van for a year, while Timio suffered a lot of deprivation. Sanchez broke into tears talking about the abuse. Otherwise, he was largely unemotional. Sanchez said he'd written a letter to his wife explaining what happened to him as a child. Kathy wanted to know why he hadn't told her. She still has trouble understanding, as we all do, Kathy. About 60% of serial killers come from an abusive, dysfunctional family, so this wasn't a surprise. Interesting fact. James Garabino, author of Listening to Killers, put together a 10-point scale called the Adverse Child Experience Scale, 10 being extremely adverse and one minor adversity. Most people get a score of three. The serial killers he studied got a score of 10, meaning their childhoods were really terrible. And I suspect Altimio Sanchez would score a 10 too. Not that adversity justifies serial rape and serial murder. Nothing does. The choices are still made by these monsters, and they know it is wrong. Sanchez told Keats his real father wasn't part of his life, although they'd met when he was in high school. As he got older, the sexual abuse he suffered continued to disturb him. He had blackouts and difficulty concentrating. He carried around a lot of anger and wasn't able to control it. In high school, he began the rapes. He confessed to Keats about two unknown attempted rapes. Senior year in 1977, he attacked a girl near Delaware Park, hitting her on the head, climbing atop of her, but he did not rape her. He attacked a second girl along the roadway, grabbing her by the hair. Again, he didn't rape her, but had a sexual fantasy lying atop her. Morton wanted to know what triggered the attacks. Sanchez didn't know what made him one person at home and then another who commits these crimes. He believed it was tied to being raped himself and watching the boyfriend abuse his mom. Was there anger? Yes, Sanchez said, quote, fantasy and anger. I think my fantasy has to do with what my stepfather did to me. My anger has to do with my mom not knowing, at least at first, end quote. And his mom didn't do anything about the abuse until after she left, taking the family to New York. He must have been really angry at her justifiably, and I think he directed this anger at women, hence the rapes. Reflecting the perversion of sex he'd learned as a child, combined with the anger of his helplessness and his mother for not rescuing him. That's why he developed this excruciating need to control others. He was in charge now. He was in power. He'd never be helpless again. The child had grown up into the monster. 
When trolling for a victim, what was he thinking about? Quote, I let out my sexual feelings to harm her. It's like I wanted control. Control made me excited. It made me want to be on top, being the man. Once I committed my first murder, it became worse. Once I knew I could commit murder, I could do another, end quote. He denied having any premeditated plans to kill the rape victims, however. So then why had he killed Linda Yellen? Quote, she put up a fight and I lost control. She never gave me control. I took it, I put a rope around her neck, and I killed her. It's all about the control, end quote. See, it's about the control. Linda fought and she denied him when his need was greatest, when his fantasies were active, and when he was engaged in acting out his rage. So why had he killed May Jane Mazur? Quote, we had sex. She didn't know I had rope in my pocket. I took it out and strangled her. What made me take the rope out and kill her? I don't know. End quote. Oh, he knows. He knows. He's either lying or he won't admit failure. That he let that inner world of his slip out and killed her. Failure is bitter to Sanchez, incredibly difficult, and he won't easily admit such things. Morton interjected that he was a good family man, a good provider, but then he had this other side. How was he able to do that? Altimio said, quote, I don't know. It's hard for me, even myself, to know that I have these separate lives. When the urge comes, I got to do what I got to do. To me, it wasn't rough sex. It was more the fantasy, end quote. Why did he take a 12-year break? Quote, after I did the two murders, I was getting scared. I had a talk with myself. You've got to stop. And I stopped for 12 years. I was still seeing prostitutes. My sex drive was getting worse and worse. My philosophy was, I've got to rape somebody and take control of this, end quote. Why did he start again after 12 years? Quote, I don't know. That day, September 29th, it never hit me that it was actually the same day as Linda Yellen. It never crossed my mind. She was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. I was on the Clarence bike path for more than a month, two to three times a week, to scout locations for an attack. Diver put up a good fight. She was taking my control away. I just wanted her to stop what she was doing. Don't fight. Just let me do what I'm doing and I'll go home. I took my anger out of her. I did what I did and felt better. It's so hard to explain why I changed from being a rapist and started being a murderer. When a person gave the description of the man in the newspapers, I got in a mood. I got so mad when I read an article in the paper about it. And that's when I said, these people have seen my face. They gave a description of me. And I got madder and madder. And that's when I started murdering victims, end quote. So while there's a huge psychological need here, the big factor here was calculated risk assessment. Eliminate the witnesses. I can continue raping and murdering. This is cold and it is calculated. He knows exactly why he began to kill so that he could keep doing it and not get caught. Sanchez was asked about April 1981 when the victim saw him at the mall with Kathy. What was that about? Quote, I had my son in my arms and we were looking at clothes and I looked at her and recognized her and she recognized me. And I got scared, very scared. And I told my wife, oh, let's go. We're leaving. That's when I had my uncle's car. So I think about it now, it would have been better of me to have been arrested back then. End quote. Oh, his victims would agree. Raped at 21, she had asked her brother and friend to accompany her to the mall, too fearful to go anywhere alone. Remember, this was two days after she'd been raped. 
In 2008, she told the New York Daily News that they were walking along and suddenly he was there, the rapist, with a woman and child. Their eyes met and Sanchez abruptly beat feet, hurting his family towards the parking lot. Crumpling into the arms of her friend, she said, quote, that's him. That's the man who raped me, end quote. Her brother followed Sanchez into the parking lot and got his license plate. Keats then asked about Uncle Wilfredo Caraballo, with Sanchez admitting, quote, he knew he kept this secret for a long time. Me and Freddie were very close. When I started committing these crimes, it seemed he started slipping away, end quote. Well, yeah, it just really pisses me off that this guy, Wilfredo, didn't do time as an accessory or at least obstructing justice. Had Sanchez known that Anthony Capozzi spent 21 years in prison for rapes that Sanchez had committed, quote, I never knew that somebody got arrested for the crimes I committed, end quote. He did say that having someone in jail taking the blame made it easier for him to keep raping them. Why had Altimio participated in the Linda Yellen Memorial Run held on the anniversary of her death? Quote, Five or six guys had a running team at American Brass. I don't know what made me do it, but I ran the race, end quote. It must have struck him as funny that her killer was memorializing her, reinforcing the belief that he's such a good guy. He participates in charities. I'm sure he was amused and really satisfied about that. How did he choose his victims and was there a type? He answered, quote, no, I didn't care for blacks, but there were no age differences. If you were there when I was there, you were going to be one of my victims, end quote. A few days after Linda Yellen's murder, University of Buffalo tried to reassure students and parents. Lois Baker, a freelance writer who was working at the university's news bureau, wrote an opinion piece in the Buffalo News. Lois Baker wrote, quote, Last Friday was a thrillingly beautiful day, so instead of doing my daily run, I decided to put a few miles on the Amherst bike path. I ran alone because running is an individual sport. That's one of its special attractions. You don't have to make dates or match schedules. Mother Nature arranged a stunning bouquet of wild asters, deep purple, light lavender with goldenrod. Grasshoppers hopped, and I sidestepped furry caterpillars sunning themselves on the asphalt, end quote. Lois planned to run there again on September 29, 1990, but it was rainy, so instead she ran at Delaware Park. Sunday evening, she heard a young woman had been raped and murdered on the bike path during her daily run. She went to bed that night, stunned, shaken, angry. Linda Yallen had died in broad daylight on a public trail. Baker realized she could have been his victim very easily. Lois Baker is married to Michael Beebe, the co-author of the Bike Path Murder Book. Yep, she is Michael's wife. Lois told him that she'd seen a man during her run who looked out of place. He was not dressed in running clothes and didn't look like a runner, but was running. As Baker approached him, something alerted her, a sense that something about him wasn't quite right. And Murder Book, as you know, this is real. It is a scientific fact that we perceive below our conscious awareness. So these hunches, ominous feelings, they are real. Trust your gut. As Lois passed the man, she turned around and saw that he had turned too and was staring at her. Once she had gone as far as she planned, she turned around, and soon enough, here was this same man, short, swathy looking, with prominent, heavy, dark eyebrows. 
This time, Baker ran off the path to keep her distance as he continued to stare. She didn't think any more of the encounter until Monday morning when the story about Linda Yellen's murder broke with the composite sketch. Quote, that's the man I saw on the bike path, end quote. She called the Amherst PD speaking to a detective. She didn't mention this in her article, instead expressing frustration about the rapes. That was a close call, Lois. Thank God you were okay and trusted your gut. Later, during the prison interview, Sanchez confirmed he was on the bike path when Lois Baker saw him. And six years later, on September 29th, 1986, Baker ran in the Linda Allen Memorial Run. After Sanchez was arrested, Michael Beebe checked the race results to see if the bike path murder had actually done the race. Three places behind Lois Baker, the results showed Altimio Sanchez. There, but for the grace of God, go I. Be safe, everyone. That is it for episode 36, The Bike Path Killer, by Mackie Becker and Michael Beebe. Be sure to read the book. It is just not possible for me to cover all the twists and turns that the authors have delved into. I hate cutting parts out. So read the book. You will love it as much as I did, I'm sure. And my choice for our next book is Unsolved, The John Binet Murder, 25 Years Later by Paula Woodward. After the murder of John Binet Ramsey, rumors and misinformation planted by Boulder, Colorado, law enforcement sped across the nation and world. Suspicion immediately fell on the family as police sought to exploit her death in the media. Prosecutors and law enforcement intentionally manipulated existing evidence and ignored inconvenient evidence. Paul Woodward is one of the few journalists who reported the family side of the story. She's still investigating the 25-year conspiracy to convict John and Patsy Ramsey by law enforcement who acted with arrogance, insecurity, and incompetence. In Unsolved, Woodward explores outstanding questions that still swirl about the cold case and denounces the myths about it. She includes new interviews with John Ramsey, his wife Jan, and son John Andrew, who speak with stunning candor. Interwoven throughout the book is expert commentary on what the actual evidence shows. Big emphasis here, and whether the killer will be caught. Thank you for listening. Please leave a five-star review and buy me a coffee if you can. Yep, I'm now on Buy Me a Coffee, Backslash, Murder Shelf, BK, CB. The link is on my blog, www.murdershelfbookclub.com. Both will really help me grow the podcast and make new murder bookies. Reach out to me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Shoot me an email at jill at murdershelfbookclub.com. I really love hearing from you. Follow me or subscribe to my show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Podbean, wherever you listen to podcasts. Let my episode pop right into your feed. Until next time, Murder Bookies, happy reading. Source material, snack and drink information for the Bike Path Trilogy is found on my blog. Written and produced by Jill, all rights reserved. Music by Carl Hosena, lyrics by Otto Harbeck.